Hello everyone, happy new year, happy new decade, welcome once again to Turkey Book Talk, thank you for joining, I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul, in this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region, this is episode number 106 and in it we hear from Mike Giglio, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of a new book called Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate, published by Public Affairs. The book describes Giglio's years reporting on the rise and fall of ISIS from Turkey, Syria and Iraq, including plenty of time embedded with Iraqi special forces and the Syrian Kurdish YPG on the front line against ISIS. It's obviously a story full of drama, but the book is not at all sensational, instead giving us a very sensitive on-the-ground picture which is full of complexity. Before we get started, remember that if you haven't already, do consider supporting the podcast by signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Becoming a member gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury Publishing, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, another perk that signed up members get is an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership amounts to no more than $6 per month. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now, onto our conversation with Mike Giglio. We get into the details of how the rise of ISIS affected people in Turkey, Syria and Iraq a bit later on. But I started by asking him how he first came to Istanbul and how he gradually became more and more embroiled in reporting on the war in Syria. I actually came to Istanbul by accident. I was uh, living in London working for Newsweek and I was getting ready to become the next Pakistan bureau chief. So I'd gone to Pakistan and scouted out real estate and met uh, the colleagues I was going to be working with there. And literally as I was boxing up my desk the night before I was due to depart for Pakistan, I got a call from my editor saying, Hey, before, can you delay your flight for a week or so? And can you just reroute for a bit to Antakya, Turkey? And I said, what the hell is Antakya? And I'd never paid attention to to it before. I didn't realize at the time that it was Antioch uh, from the Bible. And the reason that they had made that request was because the Syrian civil war had almost overnight gone from being a conflict where it seemed pretty certain that the rebels wouldn't amount to much and that maybe it would just stay to the smaller cities and provinces 
and then transformed really like instantly into a movement that could possibly topple the Assad regime and one of the most brutal dictatorships in, in the world and, you know, have all these major world implications for Iran and, and for the region. The rebels had that week had just pushed into Aleppo, which was the commercial capital of Syria. And there had been a bombing in Damascus that killed some senior members of the Syrian regime. And so it was like overnight, it was like front page story, major, major news, news coverage on all the networks. And I just sort of went to the airport in the morning and changed my ticket and landed in Antakya instead with just a double bag, um, expecting to be there for, for a week. And as I, I started covering the war, I realized, you know, this is going to be probably the defining story of, of our time. And one week became two weeks, two weeks became three weeks. And then I was chasing a, a story and it took me to Istanbul, which I'd, I'd never been to Istanbul before. And I remember as soon as I landed in Istanbul and you make that epic drive, which you're I'm sure familiar with from the airport to the center of the city and you're just driving along the water and you see all the ships anchored there. I was just instantly in love. And I remember calling my my now wife who was living in New York and just saying, I, I don't think I'm leaving. Um, you know, would you like to try to make a life in Istanbul? And from there, I, I, I sort of concocted a, a plan to tell um, my editors, hey, instead of, you know, moving to Pakistan and covering Afghanistan, let me be your regional correspondent based here and cover the, the what's left of the Arab Spring in Egypt, which I've been focusing on a bit, and then cover this, this civil war in Syria, really just as an excuse to, to stay in Istanbul. I liked your uh, poetic description of Istanbul at one point. You write, quote, With the Middle East in chaos, Istanbul had become the last sanctuary, a place where you could be at the centre of the storm and also sprawl out on a boat in the blue waters of the Bosphorus or sit with friends for hours at the white tablecloths of the fish restaurants, smoking cigarettes and getting drunk on Arak. The city felt like a listening post from another era, as journalists and activists argued and conspired amid its faded Greek and Ottoman glory. It's a pretty nice uh, purple passage. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, it, for, for me, I, I spent more than five years in Istanbul in the end. And really, I think it was the most interesting place to be in the world at that time. And I, I really feel like uh, it, it, it's great as a journalist and as a writer to just feel like you're in exactly the right place. But of course, the book is focused on events over the border. And really what we read is what well, reflects the title. You know, we witness the, the shattering of a nation uh, over the course of a decade and the ripple effect that that has on its neighbours. And we witness what that does to people on all sides of the conflict, how it changes them, how it changes you. And I thought the book ended particularly powerfully because there's no great revelation, really. There's no resolution. There's no redemption, even. It just sort of leaves us with this unvarnished, uh, you might say, extremely depressing impression of what's happened. Uh, was that a deliberate decision on your part to leave it in that way? It was. I, I made a vow to myself that the book would be as honest as possible and there would be no illusions in the book. And so even the way I describe combat, for example, I, I try not to make it seem heroic or in any way like an action movie or anything and just like really depressing and horrible. And I try to make the war feel that way too. And when I was thinking about how to end the book, I was thinking, you know, what, what for me is the, is the takeaway from all this and, you know, from the war and from, from how the world was changed by the conflict in Syria and by ISIS and by the populist movements in the West that ISIS helped to set into motion. And the answer to that question is that in a way, ISIS uh, achieved its goals. And in a way, the, the world has really changed irrevocably. And I, I want people to understand that. And it's, it's not a happy, happy story. Um, so I, I felt sort of obligated to relay that and not to, you know, have the temptation of a, of a neat ending or, a, or that there's optimism where, where I actually don't, don't really feel it. 
The book opens with a chapter in which you describe being embedded with uh, Iraqi special forces as they start to push to recapture Mosul uh, from ISIS. It's a very tense scene because basically the, the Humvee that you're riding in gets boxed in and the driver and the people that you're alongside detect at one point uh, that a suicide car bomb is effectively targeting you on its way to you and the driver is trying to evade it. And that kind of throws us right into the action. Could you just describe what that was like, what was going on, just to set that scene for us? So, I, you know, the book starts actually with the beginning of the Arab Spring. And it does that because I think it's really important to understand what happened in Egypt and Syria. Because I, I think without that, you can't really understand what ISIS was and why it, why it came to be and, and what the feeling of this war was without, without really getting that, that history. And, and, and so that's the beginning of the narrative. And really the end of the narrative is, is the battle for Mosul, which was the most important city that ISIS held and the seminal battle in this war. Really, I think everything built up to this point. The the battle started in October of 2016, and U.S. presidential election was looming, and there were ISIS terrorist attacks uh, shaking Europe and, and America, and, and this kind of sense that all the evil and all the unrest that ISIS had set into motion was coming to a head. And at the same time, the Iraqi forces were starting their offensive for the ISIS capital and their most important city. And and the way I try to frame it in the book is, and this is what it felt like at the time. For me and also for a lot of the soldiers I spoke to, it's just, you know, can can ISIS be stopped in the heart of its territory before it's uh, too late? And so that, that's what the stakes really felt like in Mosul. And because of that, I decided to embed as closely in the fighting um, as I could and, and really do immersive reporting. And to do that, I tracked down a unit of Iraqi special operations forces that really are the most elite group of men uh, with the soldiers in Iraq and had also been fighting this, uh, with the American troops during the Iraq war and were just these very seasoned, well-trained soldiers. And, and because they were so good at their job, they had been made into the tip of the spear for the offensive for Mosul. And so they were usually the first people into a neighborhood and would clear it and then let the other uh, forces come behind them and, and solidify the games. So the embeds uh, usually uh, looked like this. It would be myself and a photographer inside a, a Humvee and a big gigantic armored vehicle with a driver and uh, a passenger in the backseat next to me who was sort of like a spotter looking out the window and then a gunner uh, in the roof above us and we would drive into ISIS territory as part of the, the attack. And and when we're when we're doing that, you know, the there's plenty of dangers that the soldiers are looking out for. You know, bullets are usually pinging off the, the Humvee um, or, or cracking the, the, the windows of the Humvee are reinforced. So the bullet would hit, hit the window and it would crack, you know, quite often, for example. And ISIS was using drones to drop grenades and they might hit the roof or mortars would explode around us. But there's some sort of sense of protection from, from those uh, weapons. I mean, they, they can, um, if they get the right hit, cause real damage to the Humvee and, and maybe kill us. But the, the weapon that they, they had the hardest time defending against were suicide car bombs. Um, and ISIS had really turned that into a devastatingly effective weapon where they were making these, uh, they were taking civilian cars and putting them into factories and armoring them in this very, um, spooky looking way, you know, this boxy armor with metal uh, 
covering the windshields to protect the driver. And then they were packing them with explosives and, and they would have drivers speed them into the, the Humvees and, and explode. And if it, you know, if one of these hits near a Humvee or hits the Humvee, it's, it will instantly kill everybody inside of it. So the experience of, of combat for me was really, uh, and for the soldiers was, was, was sitting in the Humvee and, you know, listening to the gunfire. And at the same time, they're always keeping an ear out for the radio that, that was always playing in the background inside the Humvee, uh, for the word car bomb or the words car bomb in Arabic. And as soon as someone said it on the radio, everyone would tense up and start looking because they would sometimes pop out of an alley um, or or be barreling down the road. And and it was a threat that was always in everybody's mind. And and so in this example that I leave the book with that you're describing, I I, I heard the words car bomb and I I had that moment of thinking that I heard it on the radio, but then I realized actually the person saying it was the soldier sitting beside me. And the car bomb had snuck up on us and was about 20 yards from, from the Humvee. And, um, and speeding toward us and I, I you know the soldier saw it and I actually saw it too and we the driver tried to our driver tried to get away from it but there was a barricade in front of us so he just in sort of a, a hopeless attempt to get over the barricade he just sped into it and we just crashed into it and then sort of um, sat there waiting to, to die really because uh, the, 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 our gunner had um, given up and closed the hatch and uh, ducked down beside me and we were just kind of bracing for the impact and so that's that's the opening scene of the book. Uh, the book is full of very memorable encounters of that you had with fighters on all sides. Perhaps most striking for many Western readers, I suppose, would be uh, your encounters with ISIS fighters, defectors, sympathizers, uh, smugglers. Just talk about those meetings, how you set them up. Um, of course, this was a pretty dangerous undertaking at the time. You know, as you were down there, there were a number of reporters and aid workers and whatnot who ended up getting kidnapped and beheaded on video by ISIS around this time. I mean, how much did you think about those cases and, and what kind of thoughts and fears did you have going into those meetings? I, I thought about the kidnapping risk quite a bit, and it was something I discussed with my editor and, and with my security team. We did take comfort knowing that the meetings that I did were always in southern Turkey, uh, in Antakya and in other cities. And the kidnappings that um, that you're describing, where aid workers and journalists had been beheaded, had all taken place across the border in, in Syria. So there was that, that sense of at least, you know, we're not doing this in Syria, which would have been far more dangerous. But, you know, our security protocol was, you know, me sending um, my team a list of people to call should I get kidnapped and you know what what person might be able to pull connections with what what faction to, to try and get me out and who in the State Department and, and elsewhere might, might, might need to be alerted so it was, it was definitely on our minds but we also you know uh, my editor and I especially we, we had a discussion early on and, and throughout saying you know if, if we're going to cover this war like it is very important to hear from the, the people that America is fighting and I think that it's easy to uh, to not do that and to say you know they're the bad guys and, and we don't need to hear from them. But I, I think that that does a real disservice to, to American readers, especially and Brits and anyone else who's involved in, in the coalition and in, in the war effort, because um, I, you should know who you're fighting. And you should try to make an effort, if you consider yourself to be at war, even as a citizen, to, to understand the enemy. And I found that you know the perception of ISIS among Americans was often something like uh, just robotic, uh, mindless, uh, almost movie villains who just sort of march forward and, and don't really uh, give much thought to their actions. And, and I, I sought instead to humanize them and, and try to go into their individual stories of why they were doing what they're doing and why they had done what they've done in the case of the sectors. 
and you know ex explain that they, these are real people with their own reasons for, for what they're doing and you know, I, I think you know humanizing them and it, it doesn't excuse at all um, what they did and actually I, I think in a way it makes them even uh, more frightening I think if you recognize the humanity even in the nicest member it tells you something really unnerving about the human condition and it's reality that maybe we don't we don't often want to face in our enemies um, and so that that was really the driving focus of the part of my work that, that focused on ISIS members and, and defectors and, and sympathizers and you know enablers. Now, for the first uh, years of the war, Turkey kept its border with Syria pretty much open, uh, hoping that various fighters crossing crossing it would be able to to bring about a swift end to uh, Assad. And obviously, didn't, that didn't happen uh, in the end. And Turkey uh, ultimately tightened up its border, building this massive defensive wall that it's got now along much of that border with Syria. It's basically a, a 180 degree turnaround from the situation at the start of the war. But you were down there, you witnessed how easy it was to cross that border for, for fighters, extremists and moderates. And indeed, you crossed it many times yourself as you reported on what was going on. Just talk about how that open door policy affected things on the ground and, and what you witnessed uh, down there. The problem with, with Turkey having let the traffic across the border, not just in people, but in goods and in illicit commodities like oil, for example, it, it, the problem them having allowed that to happen almost almost unchecked or, or relatively unchecked for so long was that by the time they did decide to try and make some effort to crack down along the border, building the wall, like you mentioned, and at times increasing security and crackdowns, by the time they did that, it was almost too late because the smuggling networks that had already even existed in, on that border, like you know, on many borders, even before the war, th those smuggling networks became so entrenched and so powerful with the influx of money that, that they were almost impossible to completely root out. So, so even after Turkey built this wall and even after it made some efforts to, to crack down along the border, this, the smuggling was a, was a problem that, that I think couldn't be stopped fully. Um, and I continued to see that ISIS uh, members and, tra and traffickers who did the business of ISIS and smugglers who did the business of ISIS were able to operate it was more difficult for sure, but we're able to operate even even well after Turkey built this wall and, and began its, its crackdowns. And so the sort of original sin for Turkey in this war was, was, was allowing that to go on for so long. And it ended up being a, a problem that they, they never could fully address after that. Now, um, you spent quite a bit of time, I think, starting in late 2013, embedded with the YPG, the Syrian Kurdish-led militia, uh, right at the start of its uh, anti-ISIS campaign. And uh, you describe these experiences in the book. Just talk about your experiences reporting on the YPG. Uh, the YPG. Obviously, the book ends in the, the autumn, actually, of 2017, uh, so quite a while ago, and much has happened since then. Most recently, there was this Turkish campaign against the YPG across the border a couple of months ago. Just reflect on that as well you know were you surprised by that operation and and how you know as that was going on what were your reflections as, as somebody who's been on the ground there with the ypg in, in in a lot of the areas that turkey ended up staging this operation in yeah so i hadn't paid much attention to the ypg which is the the kurdish uh, faction in in syria because they, they weren't really part of the civil war early on and they they made a decision um at the beginning to, to not get involved because they understood um very well and actually it was wise of them in, in retrospect that if they were to join the fight against the assad regime which had oppressed them had oppressed kurds uh before the war that they, that they would be carpet bombed and that there would be just uh masses of civilian deaths in their territory and that's ended up maybe 
being what happened elsewhere in Syria. And so I, I didn't have them much on my radar, but in 2013, I had just come back from Egypt. I was in Egypt to cover the military coup and the ensuing massacre in Cairo that put an end, I think. I think it was, it's like, if you think about the symbolic end to the Arab Spring, that was it. You know, Egypt was where the Arab Spring really became a sensation and, and where they had elected a, a president and, and then the military returning to power like this and, and killing hundreds of demonstrators um, in a day was sort of the end of it. And there was a sense at the time, in the same time period, the Assad regime had um, had launched its first well-known chemical weapons attack, and the Obama administration had had declined to, to do anything about it, uh, despite having said that it would do so. And so it really felt like the Western world had was sort of throwing up their hands and saying, okay, the Arab Spring is dead, and the Syrian conflict is just a quagmire, and, and, and we're, we're going to try not to pay attention to this anymore. Like, it's not, it's no, no longer in the headlines. It's very hard to get editorial interest in, on Syria and on Egypt at that, at that time. So as this was all playing out, I, I got a, a phone call from a contact of mine who had uh, was, a, was a Syrian Kurd who had lived in Istanbul for years and who I knew from Istanbul. He, we were uh, drinking buddies. And I had, he, had, he had gone back to Syria over the summer when when I was in Egypt and, and decided to stay there. And he called me on, on Skype, actually, and said, you, you need to come here and you need to see what's happening. There, there's a new front in the, in the war that's starting. Um, and so I, w- I, I went down to um, the Kurdish region of Turkey and was smuggled across the border and I, I joined him and I joined the Kurdish uh, militants, the YPG that, that he was uh, trying to get attention for and I found that they were they were fighting what, what later became known as ISIS. And it was the first time that a you know an opposition group, you know, non non-government group in Syria started specifically fighting ISIS. And it was when, you know, America wasn't it wasn't really on America's radar yet and it wasn't really on the world's radar at all. But the, the Kurds had seen that this was going to be a very dangerous group, and they predicted accurately that, that ISIS would, would try and take their territory, and, and they had they had gone to war with it. And so it was the first sort of battles against ISIS, and I, and I went and, and covered that with them. And for me, as someone who, who lived in, in Istanbul and in Turkey and understands the political dynamic there, it, it was very, very interesting to be embedded with the YPG, because as you know, they are a, a franchise of the PKK, which is the insurgent group that has been on and off at war um, with the Turkish government for decades. And it's labeled actually by the State Department as a terrorist group and, and by Turkey as well. Um, and so I I had that in the back of my head that I'm, I'm with this group that has a very um, direct connection to the group that's fighting uh, the Turkish government. And, and it was it was very odd to be with them and traveling actually along the border at times. And I could see into Turkey. And I remember being so anxious about crossing back into Turkey from Kurdish territory and wondering, you know, whether I might get detained. And, uh, and you know, we, we did have to, like, dodge the border guards to get back in. And, and I was very concerned that if I if I did get caught coming back from Kurdish territory, that they would, you know, perhaps kick me out of the country. Whereas if I got caught coming from a, a different part of Syria, you know, they probably would have just waved me, waved me on. One of the things that you reflect on quite a bit in the book and you keep coming back to, and it's a very interesting point, I thought, is how U.S. involvement in uh, in Syria and in, indeed Iraq and indeed elsewhere in the Middle East in recent years has basically been increasingly pushed to the side, almost out of sight, out of mind of the public. Nobody wants to put boots on the ground. And also one effect that you talk about is 
having a professional army, you know, not reliant on conscripts. So this also adds to this almost disengagement, really. Uh, you write at one point, quote, I worried about the psyche of a country that still considered itself at war, but was more disengaged than ever from it, with no sense of shared sacrifice or even collective responsibility. And I suppose in probably the last 10, 15 years, uh, that process has accelerated, really. You know, there's more about an air campaign or having a minimal number of people involved, essentially. And this has other side effects that you talk about in the book. Could you just expand on that a little bit? I, I think what, what's happened is that American war has moved to, to the shadows. It's become something that's waged in, in secret for the most part, or, or from the skies, as you mentioned. And, and because of that, it's, it's something I think the U.S. government feels it doesn't really have to talk about. And actually, I think I think it's eager not to talk about it. And that's part of the re- reason for the reliance on, on secrecy. And you know, the way I try to, to put it into context in the book and in, in the passage that you referenced, if you think back to the war that defined my parents' generation, which is the Vietnam War, there was a draft. And, and because of that, Americans felt deeply connected to that war effort. And there were soldiers, you know, from across the country and from, from all parts of society who served in the war. But also there were there were protests, there were civil unrest, there was a real movement against the war. And, and, and that's because everyone had a stake in it. And then by, by the time the, the war of, of my generation that started actually when I was 18 was, was the Iraq War, we America had, had changed and, and now had a, a volunteer army. And there, there was resistance to the war, right? But there wasn't this sort of mass civil uh, campaign and, and unrest uh, tied to it. And I, I think that's because it's a volunteer army. But I, I think, you know, because the Iraq war dragged on for so long, and so so has the war in Afghanistan, and because it was so ugly, like the war in Afghanistan, I think the U.S. public has, has burned out even on the idea of sending a volunteer army overseas. And so I, I think the next evolution of this gradual detachment of Americans from their military has been a reliance on special forces and special operations forces, groups like the Navy SEALs and the Delta Force, who to carry out the U.S. military effort because these troops are officially classified. You know, everything they do is, is secret. And that gives politicians an excuse not to talk about it. And it gives Americans an excuse not to think about it. And so the U.S. presence in Iraq and Syria, you know, a thousand troops in Syria, those are, that's a that's a special forces mission. And, you know, the, what, what Trump is uh, is actually able to do is, is say, oh, well, we, we can just pull these people out. The war is one, and, and uh, well, actually, that's not the case. But the, it's the case that actually uh, Americans aren't really clear on what those soldiers are doing in Syria, and so it's easier for politicians to sort of do what they want. And as you mentioned, especially in the ISIS campaign, but you can see this in, in other countries too. Like the other part of the U.S. involvement is, is airstrikes, and so you have special forces on the ground, but they're not really acknowledged. And then you have uh, you have air campaign. In the protagonists of the book are all local soldiers because local soldiers were the were the ones that were the boots on the ground on America's behalf and did do most of the fighting. You know, special forces and special operators, they, they're, they're, they're more of a force multiplier, and then they carry out, you know, high-value target raids and, and things like that. So the, the war looked like Iraqi and Kurdish soldiers charging forward in some of the scenes that I, I described earlier, and, and then thousands of U.S. airstrikes. What I worry about is that because this war is billed as America's war, but not really. Americans are sort of told, you're, you're at war with ISIS, but you don't have to worry about it or think about it. We're just bombing, and our soldiers aren't really too involved. 
it, it doesn't really push Americans to, to grapple with well, what, what effect is our involvement actually having? How many civilians are actually being killed in, a, in these airstrikes? And, and, and who are the local soldiers uh, who are fighting this war on our behalf? And, and also, um, like I mentioned earlier, who, who, who are the who are these people who we're, who we're fighting? I, I'm very concerned about that. And so actually, it's probably one of the main motivations for me in writing the book is to try to explore that question and, and, uh, and, and flesh it out. It made me reflect a bit on comparing it really with Turkey, I suppose, because in Turkey, of course, military service is still there. And the military, of course, is something that affects pretty much every family in the country. You know, even people who pay their way out of it have to do a minimum three weeks military service. So that is sort of the other side of the pendulum, I suppose. You know, there's a deep militarism ingrained across society and you can't move for for for, um, for reports about what the Turkish military is doing in various places right. across the border. And I don't know, it's funny to compare because you know i suppose both uh, situations are not healthy really yeah entirely right and i also you know to be clear i don't think that america should have a draft i just think the, pu- the public needs to be more engaged and and needs to challenge the politicians to be accountable for these wars and they need, need to challenge themselves to also be accountable and to pay attention and you know the problem with turkey it's you know the militarism is, is is not healthy and also i would say that this is exacerbated by the fact that turkey does not have a free press and so I don't think the the public uh, really gets an accurate picture of the Turkish uh, military or, or what it's doing, or you know the the war with the with Kurds and uh, with the PKK, excuse me, in the in the southeast. I, I don't I don't think the that's covered you know adequately at all in, in Turkey. And as you know, you know these days especially Turkish government's repression of uh, free speech and, and of the press is, is worse than ever. And I think that that really makes it much worse. Yeah, and I think some of the trends that you um, talk about in the book are actually beginning to happen in Turkey as well. You know, drone warfare in Turkey, you know, Turkey is very advanced actually in this and it's increasingly using armed drones in the campaign against the PKK. And of course, the, the military is becoming more and more professionalized as the years go on. So I suppose some of these tendencies are also happening in Turkey as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you describe in the book how you were in Mosul uh, as the uh, Iraqi special forces were basically retaking the city from ISIS, uh, as we talked about before. Uh, but as you were, as that campaign was going on, uh, and as you were embedded with it, you were there when actually Trump was elected uh, back in 2016, November. Just uh, you'd reflect on this a bit in the book. Just talk about what the response of the people around you was, you know, the anti-IS, uh, the anti-ISIS Iraqi forces, particularly, uh, and also among, you know, on the other side, among uh, ISIS contacts, I suppose, uh, to the election of Trump as US president and how that's changed perhaps in the years since. So I, I, as you mentioned, was was actually in in Mosul with the Iraqi unit that I had, you know, spent the, the battle with on election night, and I woke up at I think it was six a.m. and you know there was uh, there were mortars hitting around the house where we were staying, and so I was up and and I I checked my phone and I checked Twitter and it was right as the election was being called by Dr. Trump, and I remember being very struck, and I, I relate this in the book actually, being very struck by how extreme the American conversation was around this and how, how people in America sometimes seem desperate to create conflict for themselves. And that's very striking to me at a time when so many people around the world are, are doing everything they can to escape conflict. And then you see uh, Americans talking in the language of civil war, you know, if Trump doesn't win, I'm going to grab my musket or, you know, uh, Trump opponents saying that they're going to, you know, flee the country now. And, and it's just 
it, it really um, depresses me to see that kind of dialogue and, 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 the, and the tenor of the, of the debate. And so, so that was my experience watching it in, in, in Mosul. The soldiers I was with had interesting reactions because, the, as I mentioned earlier, this particular unit and, and the Iraqi Special Forces more generally, they, their, their relationship with the U.S. military goes back to 2005. And they have worked alongside U.S. troops um, and, and shed blood alongside U.S. troops. And, and they, they sort of have this view of America, like they're very obviously aware that America destroyed the country, uh, destroyed Iraq with the Iraq war. But they also seem to feel that America is good intention, uh, is well-intentioned and um, like they, they kind of take America warts and all. This is how I describe it sometimes. That being said, Trump had had defined his campaign in part by calling for a, a Muslim ban, as he put it, and that would have affected Iraqis and it would have banned the same soldiers that were fighting in Mosul. You know, the unit that I was with, were, I mean, they were taking casualties to a shocking degree. And as that's happening, their entire country and being you know, written off by Trump as a potential terrorist. So they they were grappling with that, you know, in the wake of his election. And I, you know, I even spoke. There was a an Iraqi soldier uh, from the unit who had was was just about finished with the process of getting a, I think, either a visa or a green card to to move to America. And he he was like beside himself, imagining that now he might actually get get banned. So so after the election, I spent a few more days in, in Mosul, and then I um, I decided I wanted to go back to southern Turkey, and I, I wanted to interview people who were with ISIS at the time the election was announced to try to get some kind of window into what how they saw it. And so what that ended up looking like was me and, and my co- my Syrian colleague that I work with, uh, we, we interviewed people who were recent defectors from ISIS, but had been there on election day. That was our focus. And we found that, um, and it's, you know, it's related in the book that, that ISIS was was celebrating officially in uh, and also unofficially when uh, when Trump won because they understood that his message, uh, you know, talking about a Muslim ban and you know the, the vindictive way in which he framed U.S. airstrikes and, and said that he wouldn't take heed about civilian casualties and you know all of this helped the narrative that they tried to push about America in saying that it was actually against Islam and against Muslims and such an, a, a big part of ISIS propaganda was, was aimed at Muslims living in Western countries and, and they hoped to tell them you may think that these places are welcoming you may think that they um, these liberal democracies um, welcome everybody but actually you're not welcome there whether you want to see it or not and part of the goal of ISIS terrorist attacks was to inflame local sentiment against Muslims to try to help them make that point and so with that in mind Mind, they they saw the election in America of someone who had called for a Muslim ban. Again, these are Trump's own words. You know that's how he framed it. You know they they saw that as a major propaganda win. Now, you're based in the uh, in the U.S. now. Uh, I wonder is there any prospect of uh, coming back to Turkey to report? Obviously, you've done some pretty sensitive reports. So I suppose the question is more: Do you think you'd be able to? You know, of course, uh, many journalists have been barred from entering the country in in recent months and years. I think I could. Um, I'm not sure that I will. I miss Turkey, like personally, and uh, so I, I plan to go back for just personal reasons to visit the country and visit friends. I'm sort of torn between the impulses to want to continue the work that I was doing and wanting to put it behind me for various reasons. And so I'm, I'm not I'm not quite sure whether whether I'll come back and try and uh, you know work on a, on a journalist visa at least in the, in the near term. 
That was Mike Giglio, and many thanks to him. And that was episode number 106 of Turkey Book Talk, our first episode of 2020. If you're a fan of the podcast, do consider starting this new decade by signing up as a member on Patreon to support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics literature and various other things to become a member and get all that just pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talks patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use follow via twitter or like the facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thanks a lot for listening (laughs) 